If you could turn to the New Testament, to the book of Titus, which is um, page 1199 in the Church Bible, 1198, and we'll read the first eight verses. What Paul does to Titus is to speak about the, the different generations that are to be found in the church. And it's interesting to um, make the observation as we read. And the key word, of course, which is part of our uh, series, uh, priorities in an aimless world, you will see in both readings this word integrity has, has come up and you'll see it now within the church. So Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, in the same way, the next group, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So important is integrity. Well, this is part of a series, and tonight uh, these are more topical sermons, complete in and of themselves, and yet part of uh, a whole series of uh, priorities in an aimless world. And now we try to crystallize the sermon into one word, which is integrity. Integrity. And as we've mentioned already, that's come out in, uh, in the reading that we had before us. Well, what do we mean by integrity? Well, let's uh, try to give, uh, no one word can fully define it, but from the the dictionary, you have the word honesty or purity. That's why we were singing, create in me a clean heart, O God. Um, Soundness or health or honor or principle or goodness. Those are some um, references that give us an idea of what we are talking about. So it's obvious, uh, from not least from the reading that we've had, uh, particularly among leaders, but with the developing younger generation as well, integrity is a priority. And uh, we shall see that in the course of the sermon. So the Christian life should be characterized by integrity. And it is very instructive the way that Paul puts it. If you've got Titus 2 
and uh, verse 7 in front of you, notice he doesn't say that you are to teach integrity. You are to show integrity, which is something that's in our lives, not necessarily on our lips. So you see that in verse 7. In everything, set them, these young men, this younger generation, an example by doing what is good in your teaching, show them integrity. That uh, there's something that is living. It's demonstrative, showing in our teaching and our living. Let me put to you just to provoke some thought for a moment so that we can have an idea where we're going. Just think for a moment. It's possible, and I guess many of us have known this, and don't go on a witch hunt with other people. Just think about yourself. It's possible to compromise our integrity. It might be what we call pressure. Maybe financial pressure, or what's often referred to as peer pressure. When we say that, we usually think of younger people. But those of us who are older know that peer pressure doesn't stop as we get older. Or it might be fear. We might be afraid of what people think about us, or will say about us, so we might go along with them and compromise our integrity. It might be in the whole area of sexuality. Or it might be to do with our financial affairs. Or it might be to to do with our Christian faith. Let me give you an example. Turn to uh, Galatians chapter 2. Here's a public quarrel for you. Don't we like this? Two apostles, Peter and Paul. Galatians 2 and verse 11. Page 1169, if you're using the church Bibles. Let's try to illustrate this within the church for the moment. Galatians 2 and verse 11. This is the church in Antioch, which, as many of us will know, is, is a church largely made up of Gentile believers, not Jewish believers. People with entirely different background when it comes to how you think religion. Okay, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. It's a public quarrel. Because he was clearly in the wrong. Implicit, he has compromised his integrity. Why? Look at verse 12. Before certain men came from James, that's the Jewish group within the church, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because, here's the pressure, he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, his lack of integrity, and now his double standards, a gospel for one group and a gospel for another. But you can't do that. Okay, let's read on. So, they joined him in his, hypo- in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, a stalwart, a godly man, a pillar within the church, was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. And not like a Jew? How is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
and so on and so forth. I think that's sufficient just to illustrate. So often out of pressure, forget about, the, you know, the, at Lord Williams' school or in, in, at work or whatever, but even within the church. We, we are victims of our background and tradition and often we can be drawn into a lack of integrity. You could put it like this, that the negative challenge of the sermon could be like this. Don't be a hypocrite. The, the negative challenge of integrity here is don't be drawn into that. Whether it's at home, whether it's in family or marriage or work or relationship with unbelievers or the church. Don't. Don't compromise your integrity. Do you remember the way that Jesus put it? So simply yet so profoundly. Let your light shine before men that they might see and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you remember it? You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, something can, our light can be obscured and our salt can lose its saltiness. And so we can lose our integrity. I think that's rather obvious, isn't it? But there is something very wonderful and attractive and tangible about integrity here because what he says to, to Titus is, look, don't preach it, show it. Show integrity. Let it be the hallmark of your life and the relationship. The way you relate to people. The way you don't talk down to people. The way you affirm people. The way that your yes is yes and your no is no. Now I think that's a big challenge uh, for today among us as Christians. Show it. You see, what's the context here? The immediate context uh, here is this. Paul is turning his attention to these young men in the congregation and thank God that there are young men here tonight and, 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 and young women as well. And, and he wants to urge Titus to slow down these young folk. In the same way, just as he cautioned the younger women, he says, likewise, that's the word, in the same way, to be sensible, to control their tongues, to, to control their tempers, to bridle their ambitions, to stop being greedy. Titus wants them to curb their sexual urges and impulses so they'll not be driven along with the world. But you say, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? He doesn't encourage them to frustrate all these things. No. He does it that he's to be a model. He's to be a model. He's not to be hypocritical. And the interesting word, the Greek word here is this, to, to, to make an indelible impression, to stamp something upon them as with, with the Roman crest, with the liquid wax that has the seal of Rome. So, they are to model these qualities in their relationships. And then, relationships will flourish. I want to use an illustration which, uh, which I borrowed from something I was reading recently. Think about this. Um, Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane was the chief surgeon and medical officer of the New York City uh, Hospital. And he made an interesting observation, a breakthrough 
that altered the thinking about the medical profession up to this day. During his vast experience in surgery, Dr. Kane had seen a number of deaths not as a result of surgery, but as a result of general anesthesia. And it was his studied opinion that most major operations could be done, not under general, but under local, a particular part of your body, anesthetize that rather than put all together, which happens constantly now. Well, that was his view. And understandably, then there weren't a line of volunteers. But he was resolute. And on February the 15th, 1921, Dr. Kane performed his first operation of local anesthesia on himself and took out his own appendix. I know, that's something. He recovered so rapidly that he was discharged from hospital after two days. Don't forget, this is 1921. It's only an illustration for you, a very vivid one, to say this. That you can be like him. And tonight, make your own surgery on yourself about your integrity. I can't do it for you, and you can't do it for me. But under the power of the Spirit, you can localize something in your life say, that's got to be dealt with. That's got to be dealt with. If we are willing to undergo this type of surgery, then I think the epidemic absence of integrity among evangelical Christians might be stopped. And there may be a turning around and people take notice that actually we do belong to Jesus. That actually we are different from unbelievers. So I want to leave two things with you. Two very simple things with with that sort of, of introduction. And the first is this. The test of adversity. Life is hard and often difficult. And adversity comes to us in all times, in all shapes and sizes and experiences. And no matter how much we've been, how long we've been Christian people, what our prayer life is like, good or bad, we're never really ready for it. Adversity is like that. Times of trouble reveal often how strong or weak we are in given areas of our lives. So, now we're going to flick through some uh, parts of the Bible and let's pursue this. We'll come to the book of uh, Proverbs, uh, after the book of Psalms. See if you can find that. It should come up in front of you, so you should have it there. Proverbs 24 and 10. I'm not going to comment too much on these now, just to illustrate the test of adversity. Proverbs 24 and verse 10, I will read. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? The converse, of course. If you stand in the time of trouble, how secure are you? How great is your strength? 25 and verse 19. That's an interesting illustration, isn't it? Like a bad tooth or a lame foot... 
is reliance on the unfaithful in times of trouble. Lean on someone who is unfaithful, who lacks integrity, and they let you down. Chapter 28. Proverbs are not a sermon, they're just a crystallized proverb, aren't they, for us. Proverbs 28 and verse 14. Blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. Somebody was telling me just Friday evening about a certain person and happened to say, you know, he's his own worst enemy. Well, I said that's usually true of all of us. Except we don't see it in ourselves, we, we see it in other people. Adversity is like a marathon. It's long term, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a steep hill. And it's hard going. We were singing that song which is based upon uh, the statement of Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that was the words that were used at the graveside outside here this past week. Let's look at the book of Job for a moment just to illustrate adversity. Get to Psalms, work back and you'll come to Job chapter 1. Now it's a... It's a fascinating book and we're only going to dip into it just to illustrate and nothing more. We're thinking about the test of adversity. That's what we're doing, okay? And uh, the whole book of Job illustrates this perfectly, as, as, as I'm sure you know. Job chapter 1 and verse 13. There's a whole catalogue of catastrophes and calamities that come tumbling upon Job. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God, think of the, uh, the pictures that we've seen in Australia fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and servants. I'm the only one left to escape to tell you. And so on and so forth. And then verse 18, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners like, like a hurricane in the house. It collapsed on them. They are dead. And I'm the only one left to tell you. And so it goes on. Series of Dreadful calamities. And then you get to verse 21, which is what we were singing about. I uh, did remind somebody who wanted this for um, a wedding hymn, which they did have. And I said, I hope you know it's Job's um, comment about death, not marriage. We sing these songs sometimes. We don't real, realize the biblical reference that they have. So what does Job say? All of this has taken place. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's bad enough. And then, chapter 2, a whole series of calamities come onto him. And then, now this is an interesting thing. Think about this now. 
Um, not, not just in marriage, but in friendship. You, it's one thing to go through trouble yourself, okay? But think of it differently. Think how you look on, on the person you really love. And you see all these things happening to them. What's your reaction? I think Job's wife has had bad press on this. So look at chapter 2 and verse 9. His wife said to him, his wife said to him, this is, this is, that's the context of this. Times of adversity. Are you still holding on to your integrity? It's a rhetorical question because she says, curse God and die. What's the point? You're holding on to integrity and all of life has treated you so badly. I think sometimes looking on on the hardships of people we know and love can be very difficult, often more than we ourselves. And in that context, you would want to say, well, somebody like that needs friends. They certainly do. And in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, his friends, and they were good friends. And they were much better when they sat with him and kept their mouths shut. But now they began to give advice. And that wasn't helpful. And Eliphaz is the spokesman in chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Well, he's got a lot to be impatient about, hasn't he? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many. He's speaking to Job. Okay. And how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now the tables are turned. Trouble, adversity comes to you. And you are discouraged. It strikes you. And you are dismayed. Should not your piety, your integrity be your confidence? And your blameless ways, and your blameless ways, your hope, consider now, and so on and so forth. And of course, what they do, as often Christians do to their fellow believers, they go on a witch hunt and look for things. In times of adversity, we need to be a help to one another, not a hindrance. And that is a hallmark of true integrity. Faith is tested under the abrasive rub of adversity. Even for people of integrity themselves, like Job. And if you read the end of the book, the Lord corrects his so-called friends. Miserable comforters, as Job called them. It's the test of adversity. It's, it, and, and I tell you this, I don't need to be a prophet to say, you and I will know such times of testing. We have done, and we will know more in the future. Secondly, the test, let's look at the, completely the other side of the equation with, with uh, this second and the final test. The test of prosperity. That's perhaps more pertinent for every one of us here tonight. The test of prosperity. I wonder if you believe me. I, I can understand it if you don't. But believe it or not, adversity is 
but a flea bite compared to prosperity that is like a crocodile. Spiritually speaking, anyway. I'm going to give a quote from uh, Thomas Carlyle. This is what he said, he observed in his day. Adversity is often hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. just want to say that again. It probably comes up in front of you. Just think about that. And don't, don't just take it in. You ask yourself, is this true? It's the other side of the equation. Thomas Carlyle, he says, Adversity is often hard upon a man. But for one man who can stand under prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. Many are the casualties of people who have compromised their faith on the grounds of their financial blessings. Let's come back to uh, Psalm 78 that Gary read to us as we uh, just think about this for a moment. You see, here is, here is King David, Psalm 78, and the last uh, three verses... Uh, it's, it's, it's a history psalm and it's a long psalm as you can see and it, it's, it's these 72 verses. But just the, the conclusion I'm interested in gives the history of the, the, the way the Lord blessed the people and when he blessed them, they turned their back on him, said we don't need you now, we're okay now and so on and so forth. Look, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And what was the hallmark of David? David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. When David was chosen, his father didn't even think about him. And you have this phrase, don't you? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks for integrity. And he was chosen, not because it was favoritism, but it was because of integrity of heart. And although he likewise, from time to time, compromised that, nevertheless, it was the hallmark of his life. And it was this that separated David from his brothers and was the reason that he was anointed and called to be king. A person with integrity has a servant heart. Look for it. Look for it. A person with integrity has a servant heart and a humble spirit. Philippians 2, if you like. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus and so on. It would be a great um, dictum for us, wouldn't it? A great motto, if you like, that could be said of us here tonight that we are calm in adversity and we are humble in prosperity. Often it is not so. That in adversity our lives collapse like a pack of cards and in prosperity, 
we can be very proud and arrogant. Priorities in a nameless world. Is there integrity among us? Calm in adversity. Humble in prosperity. Let, let me try to put it like this. and Bring it to a conclusion then. Adversity tests our ability to survive. There are people here tonight who have come through great adversity, financial pressures, pressures at work, with colleagues and so on. Okay? Adversity tests our ability to survive. I often say to some people, you're a survivor. And it's through the, the, the corridors of adversity, the pressures that they have survived. But, equally, prosperity tests our ability to sustain integrity. Just say that again so it's not complicated. Okay, adversity tests our ability to survive. Prosperity tests our ability to sustain our integrity. Uh, let's look in the book of Proverbs as we bring it to um, a conclusion. Proverbs 30 and verse 7. What do you make of this? I don't want to sort of politicize this, but how, in terms of the two headings and the test of integrity, here is the wisdom of Scripture. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 10, page 666 in the Bible. Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. In the whole of my life, wherever you're at, maybe you're, you're young folk just sitting your GCSEs or A-levels or you've retired or whatever. It doesn't matter. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread. Give me godliness with contentment. Otherwise, why should you say that? Otherwise, I may have too much. And like most people whom I rub shoulders with, disown you. And say, well, who is the Lord? Who is God anyway? Or, on the other hand, I may become poor and steal. And so... Dishonor the name of my God. On both equations, integrity is the casualty. Do you see that? I think that it is true oftentimes that adversity, whatever that is, uh, simplifies life. These Big movers and shakers in the financial world with their massive bonuses have been so humbled. And life is simplified now. The charade is gone. Adversity simplifies life. It focuses on the basics. It really does tell me, I can't take it with me. Well, if adversity does that, on the other hand, prosperity often, not always, prosperity complicates life. And we, you know, we, we have so much and, and uh, well, integrity says, 
Whatever my situation, I am not going to be conceited. Don't be conceited. Integrity says to me as I look in the mirror, keep a right perspective. Don't be conceited. And the challenge of this as a priority in an aimless world for us is, and we have to do the surgery like Dr. Cain did on himself, we might have to have a local anesthetic and say, right, I'm going to anesthetize that and I'm going to get rid of that. So how do we close when we think about the challenge of integrity. Well, we began with a psalm and we will end with a psalm. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. My anxious thoughts now on both sides of these equations, on adversity and prosperity. Test me. Be, be the surgeon, if you like, as we were illustrating. See if there is any offensive way in me. See if there are areas where I'm so lacking integrity. Turn me round and lead me in the way everlasting.